2: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: I'm David Knowles, and welcome to Ukraine, the latest from The Telegraph. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the front lines and analyse the demographic and economic havoc Russia's invasion is wreaking on its own economy and society.
2: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive
1: advantage on the battlefield, to win the war.
0: Nobody's going to break us.
3: We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground. To bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 27th of February, one year and three days since the start of the full-scale invasion. Today I'm joined by our Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, and our economics editor, Sue Chan. I started by asking Don for the latest news from Ukraine.
0: Hi everybody, so um Drone strikes last night on Ukraine. There were drone strikes across the country. Ukraine says it shot down 11 of 14 Iranian drones overnight, including nine that were fired in two waves over the Kiev region. There were no casualties or hits on buildings in Kiev, but further to the west, um, a town about 200km east of Lviv, 250 kilometers or so southwest of Kiev, uh was hit reported by 12 drones which killed a number of rescue workers. Elsewhere around the country, there's been visits to uh, Bakhmut region. So the commander of Ukrainian ground forces, Colonel General Alexander Syrsky, he visited Bakhmut. Um, I mean, this will be a morale-boosting visit, be able to sort of sniff the wind for himself type thing. I mention it because there's been a lot of discussion in the last, certainly 24 and um, 48 hours-ish, about what's happening in Bakhmut. That line has been relatively static for a number of months, and uh, we still don't think the town is completely encircled. We think the the two main roads, one to the north and effectively one one to the sort of west, that Ukraine is using to resupply that city, are still open to Ukraine, albeit under extreme pressure. But there's been a number of reports over the weekend that there was a Ukrainian counterattack, and no, no, it wasn't. It was just it was just no, the normal sort of push and pull of of uh, armies in contact. So at the moment, it is very opaque. We don't know exactly what's happening. It doesn't look as if there's been either a breakthrough by Russia or a, a counterattack from, from Ukraine. So no real news out of Bakhmut, except, as I say, I doubt the commander of, of the ground forces, uh, General Sersky, would, would have gone if it was not safe. And elsewhere, just one final update, um, Belarus. So a Russian airborne early warning aircraft has been damaged badly damaged by a, a partisan attack what have you want to call it sabotage whatever it uh, whatever moniker you like so this is sunday morning at the Makulitsky air base which is about five k's just directly south of minsk so we're talking 200 kilometers north of the border with ukraine 300 kilometers ish north northwest of of kiev itself a Beriev a50 a, an old former soviet aircraft based on the Aleutian il-76 transport aircraft that we've seen quite a few of um, it's, it's basically a long-range radar used to track their own aircraft. It's it's a kind of bring your own air traffic control to the fight type sketch. Uh, you impose an area of of understanding for so that you know where your your own aircraft are and therefore what you can where you can and can't shoot, um, and you can control your own control your own airspace. So that's what these things do. Big old aircraft um, with a huge uh, huge radar on top. This was reportedly. Attacked by a group called BiPol, Association of Security Forces of Belarus. Come back to them in a minute. What they are, who they are. But Alexander Azarov, who's the head of BiPol, said that this attack was months in the planning and used drones. Um, they said they the the front and central parts of the aircraft, including avionics and the radar antenna, were damaged as a result of two explosions. Now this this aircraft is one of fifteen such um, aircraft, at airborne airborne warning and control that Russia has. They've got sort of nine old versions that this one uh, was one of and then six uh, newer newer variants. But very quickly, Bipol, so what is it? So it, it was a, an organisation set up, created by former employees of law enforcement agencies in Belarus to counter Lukashenko and the Belarusian authorities. They've got um, channels on YouTube and Telegram and, and what have they put put messages out that way. They want to restore democratic rule to Belarus. They want to have new presidential and parliamentary elections and their supporters, uh, support, supporters of Svetlana Tikhanovskaya who stood for election in 2020 after her husband was arrested, um, he was he, he was standing, he was arrested, so she stood in his place. Since August 2020, she's been in exile in Poland, n- now Lithuania, and on January 17th of this year, she and a number of associates um, have been tried in absentia by Belarus. So so this group that, are, that, are, that, are, that I, like I say, you call them partisans or, or whatever, but are supporting um, uh, polit- or, or in favour of political reform, uh, of Belarus and supporting an exiled, uh, exiled political leader, they say they carried out this attack on a on an aircraft. I mean, a significant, significant aircraft. Like I say, there's only 15 of these in the in the Russian fleet. They're not all going to be serviceable at the same time. Um, this thing apparently has been in. Uh, Belarus since January the third, conducted twelve sorties since then. You simply have to have this if you want to if you want to have any, do anything in the sky. You need to know where all your bits and pieces are, so they're not going to run into each other. You're not going to shoot the wrong thing down, and you know where where the opposition is. So you know you've got to have something like this, and therefore it, this is a significant strike by um, by Belarusian uh, forces. This this bipolar group, um, and what, quite what long term effect it will have, we will see. But uh, but it does show. It's quite a bold attack and it does show um, their ability to strike right at the heart of, of Belarus. And I'll, uh, I'll just take a pause there.
1: Thanks, Tom. Um, let's turn to Francis Sternley before we go to Sue Chan. So, Francis, uh, what are the latest political and diplomatic updates you
2: have for us? Well, thanks, David, and welcome back to our listeners around the world. Yes, another day and another dousing of anti-Western rhetoric from Vladimir Putin He said that the Russian people may not survive in their current state, claiming that the West was trying to disband Russia. He's made this claim in a television interview, of course, the state media. It was recorded on Wednesday, but was released on Sunday. And in this interview, he claims, as I say, that the West wants to divide up Russia and then control the world's biggest producer of raw materials a step, he says, that could lead to the destruction of many of the peoples of Russia, including the ethnic Russian majority. I'll read the quote from him directly. They, the West, have one goal, to disband the former Soviet Union and its fundamental part, the Russian Federation. I do not even know if such an ethnic group as the Russian people will be able to survive in the form in which it exists today. He also said in the interview, the West plans In this intent, have been put to paper, though he didn't specify exactly where that was. Of course, the context of this is trying to make the war seem even more existential for the Russian people, not just the state apparatus, not just his own leadership, but for the whole of Russia itself. And so, this is an unsurprising development from him. He's been saying similar things for months now, in essence ever since of the invasion but it is just an, another attempt to drill home to the russian population what is at stake for them in the war in ukraine albeit without any evidence that the that the, uh, the west is actually seeking to uh, to break up the russian federation the other interesting development with regard to the kremlin is that they've said this morning that they are increasingly concerned about the state of affairs in moldova now, I spoke about Moldova at length last week, and this all stems from this breakaway region, uh, Transnistria, which is uh, supposedly from the Russian perspective, uh, somewhere where Ukraine and other European countries are stirring up the situation. Now, this is a complicated area, but in essence, there are Russian peacekeepers there, or at least that's what the Russians call them, the peacekeepers, in this uh, breakaway uh, region that is part of Moldova, and they claim that... Uh, there's in increasing dark arts taking place from the West there that is causing a delicate situation to potentially get worse. And of course, the perspective from uh, from the West and indeed from the uh, Moldovan president is very different. They are claiming, as we've already spoken about, that the Russian state is seeking to depose not only her, but to cause as many issues as possible in Moldova, because this will play into putin's hands as destabilizing the region and causing issues on ukraine's borders very strong words from uh, the moldovan president she said the uh, the situation is uh, untenable uh, and has said that this is all an attempt essentially to, uh, to to oust her and that there was actually an attempted coup on her this is what she claimed a couple of weeks ago So I only mention this because things are still hotting up there, at least in the war of words between the two sides, but there hasn't been necessarily anything yet that would suggest that there's going to be some kind of um, violence there in in, an incendiary way. But nonetheless, it's something I think that will be a cause of concern because of its geographical location on the sort of southwestern uh, border of Ukraine and because of the tensions that have played out there over many decades. So that's the lay of the land with the Kremlin. And I know that uh, Sue's going to talk more about uh, the Russian economy. So I think it's good for me to pause there and we'll come back to China and other updates in the diplomatic space later on. Thanks, Francis. And thanks, Dom. Uh, Sue, it's great to have you back on the
1: podcast. Thanks for joining us. Um, There's two sort of big things I think we should talk to you about that you've been writing about and looking at. One is on uh, Russia's demographic abyss and the other is on Russia's economy. So let's start with, um, uh, let's start with the former. Uh, you've written, um, quoting from your article on The Telegraph, I'd, I'd advise everybody to go and read it. It's really quite fascinating. Uh, you've written, quote, a country that was also already facing huge challenges is now staring into a demographic abyss. How did Russia get to this position, Suchan, and what might it mean for the future?
3: Yeah, it all all sounds very dramatic, doesn't it? But I've been looking at this issue for a while now. And just to put everything in context, I mean, the whole Western world is facing a demographic decline. So populations across the Western world, they're growing more slowly. But in Russia, the population has been shrinking for a while. So it reached its peak just before the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, when it had a population of just shy of 149 million and it's been declining ever since so at the moment it stands at around 145 million and depending on how optimistic or how pessimistic you are about the economy it could start to shrink by about a million a year and and the reason why Russia is an exception really is because a it has already started shrinking and then now with this war in ukraine it's sending all its young men to die there and the the other thing that i think is worth pointing out that isn't in the piece is that a lot of russian men they don't live as long as some people in in britain and just before i came in here i was looking at the average life expectancy of a of a chap in britain is about 79 in russia it's 66 so a lot of these men are getting to what we would think as retirement age and, and they're dying before that. And so this idea that people could work longer to bolster the public finances in years to come, that's not there anymore. So the piece that I wrote is based on some conversations because, quite frankly, we just don't know what's happening. On the one hand, Ukraine says it's killed around 100,000 Russian soldiers, while the Kremlin last year they said it's around 6,000, you know, it's closer to 10,000 now but i think the trends are, are are really clear and if if you look at the data some experts suggest that the number of births this year because the wars continue will be the lowest in modern history. And and so I was looking at some of the data, you know, you can't really get this from Russia. So, you know, you have to look at immigration statistics from a number of bordering countries. So we've seen about 200,000 people flee to Kazakhstan, which is one of the sort of top of the list of destinations for fleeing Russians to go to. What they do is they, they tend to open a bank account because visa and mastercard are cut off. So if you're Russian abroad, you can't use your card anywhere so you open a bank account and then you go elsewhere and so people are sort of dispersing everywhere and and they're looking for places where they have more opportunities so there have been a number of pieces about uh, the number of russian women fleeing to argentina to give birth because like america if you're born in argentina you immediately become a citizen then and that makes it easier for mum and dad to to get citizenship too and i think this is a slow burning crisis it's not the, the financial crisis the covid crisis but it is a crisis that's going to have huge implications for the economy in 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 50 years time when you know the working age population which was already shrinking is going to be made worse because the people who are leaving are working age men and women who were productive who are contributing to the economy there i was talking to some people the surgeons the university professors the people who will you know f- find cures for diseases and those people are leaving and russia will say hold on, hang on a minute our own statistics suggest that you know many people from ukraine are coming in but if you actually look under the bonnet of that data the people who are coming in you know they're the older population people who can't work who are not contributing to tax revenue so russia is essentially swapping its working age a productive population for many sort of older citizens who are in, unable to work and unable to contribute to the economy
1: Well, you've touched on the economy a little bit. Let's move on to that. You've written Russia will suffer the worst recession since the financial crisis as sanctions force an increasingly desperate Kremlin to embrace unorthodox economic policies. Uh, This is from the credit agency Moody's. So there's a few things here. Um, Can you talk first of all about the recession uh, and what it might look like? And then maybe we can get on to this, this idea of unorthodox economic policies. So first, just the recession and your take on that.
3: Yeah, so Mo- Moody's is it predicts that the Russian economy will shrink by 3% this year. To put it in context, during the financial crisis, it shrank by more than 8%. And during COVID, um, it was a little bit less than that. Although, just to go back to my old piece, one of the demographers that I spoke to was fired by the Kremlin for suggesting that COVID tests were more than expected. So I would take everything that you get out of the Kremlin with not even a pinch of salt, (laughs) more more than that. uh, But this independent assumption assumes that the Russian economy will shrink by 3%. As I said, that will be the worst since the financial crisis. I mean, it is fair to say that so far the Russian economy hasn't declined as much as some predicted. So Moody's itself predicted a 7% decline for last year. In the end, the Russian economy shrank by about just over... 2% 2% according to th- th- their own assumptions. But also, the International Monetary Fund has a similar assumption. Why is that? So, so far, Russia has been able to divert barrels of oil that would usually go to Western economies at a cut price to economies like China. Turkey and India. So it's been selling it on the cheap. At the start of this year, the G7 imposed more sanctions that, that mean that seaborne oil is no longer allowed into these economies and also it's it's cutting off purchases of, of refined products as well. So what Moody's is predicting is that as the, the the Western world tightens the screw on Russia, it will hurt Russia more. And as, as they point out, it can divert its barrels of oil to places like China in India, but you can't build a gas pipeline overnight. So a lot of Russian gas that used to flow in into Germany, it's got nowhere to go at the moment. So Vladimir Putin wants to, he talks about these grand ambitions to build pipelines eastwards rather than westwards. But that will take time. The other thing to to note is that Russia has a national wealth fund, so it's you know money built up from the, the money that it sold for, for, from the revenues that they got from oil sales in the past. But it's been burning through that at a rapid pace. So so I was looking at the latest figures just before I came here and you know, that, that National Wealth Fund stands at around $150 billion at the moment, but that's down $40 billion since December. So you know, it's spent $38.1 billion in December, just propping up its economy, financing its war. And you know, if it continues to burn through that National Wealth Fund at this rate, we're going to see a sort of more severe contraction and more severe consequences in the future.
1: So a demographic crisis, an economic crisis. What do you see Russia looking like in a year's time if this continues?
3: It will be more of the, same, the slow burn. You know, Russia is trying desperately to build ties with countries like China, which, you know, it's hoping to have that special relationship and a lot has been made of that. But I think going forward with a population decline, with burning through its sort of war chest of reserves, we are gonna see economic stagnation. And then this is gonna go on for decades as the population shrinks. And that's why I called it an an abyss, because uh, all economies that go through ups and downs, we've seen many of them in the UK, in the US and in Europe. But what we're talking about in Russia is a structural decline, as sort of pointy head economists would say, where you're looking at a situation of permanently lower growth where you can't do things like you can do in the UK, you know, raising the retirement age, because guess what? All the men are dying before they even reach that age. So... You know, it is looking very bleak and perhaps we will not see the biggest damage a year from now. But certainly in a a decade or two decades, Russia is going to look very different from how it does today.
1: I think you've touched on a couple of the, quote, unorthodox uh, economic policies uh, the Kremlin could embrace. Have we got them all? Is there anything else you want to mention?
3: We haven't seen this big shock to the Russian economy. You know, Russia has been able to be a bit of a wheeler-dealer in in, in some ways and cut deals with Turkey, with India, with China to get that oil somewhere else, albeit at at a cut price. But it can't go on like this forever. And I think we've seen through the the sanctions and through some of the realities that it faces with the fact that people are just leaving the country that the prospects are pretty bleak ahead.
1: Thank you very much, Sue. Uh, Francis, you've been listening to this. I'm sure you have
2: a couple of questions. Uh, Please take it away. Thanks. Well, this is a really interesting subject. And obviously, it's been something that I've been covering on the podcast for for quite some time. And all of the estimates that that I've read by academics are saying the same as Sue, that this is ultimately going to be a long-term story of decline for Russia. And the big question is, when exactly we'll really start to see that impact at home? I just wondered, Sue, whether there's anything... Other than, of course, it's been oil and gas has been major for keeping the Russian economy afloat. I'm also interested as well that weapons have been something that have been helping to support the Russian economy. I think it's something like that Russia earns about 10 to 15 billion dollars a year in arms sales to India and Vietnam and Egypt. Are there any other things that Russia have been doing, the sort of dark arts, or or whether that be domestically or involving international partners, that have helped to sustain the Russian economy in addition to arms sales and energy?
3: I think it's all been dark arts, really. I mean, at the beginning of the war and the sanctions, they were talking a lot about parallel imports i mean in layman's terms that just means smuggling right and and, and it just means russia sending stuff to countries that it, that haven't imposed sanctions on it and then those countries sending it on to countries that have imposed sanctions on it and we've been trying to follow the flows in the data it, ha- it has been very difficult because consumer goods for example they, they can come through and when you make a weapon you know you don't just sh- ship a gun in the post like you would amazon would send send you one etc you get various parts from different parts of the world so it has been very difficult to track that and in terms of other dark arts you, we've seen stories about tankers going dark and and all sorts of things so russia is trying everything in the sanctions playbook to try and avoid this. And to be honest, they have had a lot of time to practice, right, in, in terms of, you know, after the annexation of Crimea, and they, they've been building themselves up to be, to try to be at least sanctions proof. And I think they will, they have been able to di- divert some of... Um, the trade that they would have done with with the West to other countries. But as the sort of sanctions uh, noose tightens, as it were, and it faces, again, some of these things, the challenges that I've pointed out, I think there's less and less room for manoeuvre as the war goes on.
2: Thanks. So just a couple more from me. The, The first being, how do we trust the figures that we read that are coming out of Russia? I know not all of them are from kremlin sources or from state economic uh, institutions but presumably we are getting a lot of information actually from the russian government itself how do we trust what they're telling us and how how do you get that information that you're that you're citing in terms of population or or economic decline
3: don't trust anyone about anything is what you kind of learn in journalism right so the one thing the kremlin has the list of statistics that it publishes is getting shorter and shorter. I mean, this is not happening just in Russia. I think China has significantly shortened its list of, of the figures that it's publishing. So you have to take everything with more than a Pinch of salt, but for example, when we were looking at the number of people who had left, fled Russia, we were looking at statistics on the other side. So how many uh, people were crossing over, you know, into Finland, into Kazakhstan, into Georgia, into Armenia. So you can get things from the other side. Of obviously, for the population projections, we were relying on. You know, I, I used an independent. Demographer. I mean, he, he did get fired from from Russia's statistics office for for, for trying to highlight the number of COVID deaths. Uh, we are looking at the UN population projections, which do not fully reflect the impact of the war. But you know, you have to sort of grab from where you can really. And uh, we can't say totally ignore what's coming out of Russia. But I think what you need to do these days to have a more complete picture of what's going on is to look at various sources. And it's a bit more like a jigsaw puzzle rather than something that just comes, here's one I made earlier. So as it were, so it takes a little bit more time to piece everything together. But you can get a picture of what's going on just by looking at, you know, other data sources, it just takes a bit more time. And one final one from me, which is, of course, a lot of the
2: conversations around the Russian economy are assuming that the status quo remains, that sanctions remain imposed for long term, and that any relationships ha- Russia has will be maintained at the current levels with sort of, China and India and Turkey, etc. I'm just wondering what your feeling is that if China were to back russia far more extensively and i'm not just talking in terms of weapons i'm talking financially too what kind of impact could we expect that to have on the russian economy would it be very substantial or would it actually be something that we wouldn't necessarily see a big impact right away
3: so the thing about that is we are living in this massive geopolitical web right and so far for all its sort of um, warm words uh, towards russia it's also been very cautious so, you know, explicitly it's not back to Russia. And that's because China does a lot of business with you know everyone else in the world. So, if if China were to explicitly throw its weight behind Russia and, and do more business with it and, and finance the war etc I think there'll be massive massive implications globally because we're, we'll be in a world where the West will be looking at China and thinking about sanctions against the world's second biggest economy it's a huge economy it's much bigger than Russia it's much more entangled in the web of global supply chains just looking your wardrobe or or, or many of your appliances are made there so i think the implications if china were to do that would be big i mean maybe the russian economy would do better but you know the world wouldn't be certainly and it would have bigger implications than just saying oh you know russia would grow more because it will have consequences for everyone
1: thanks sue and thanks Francis for your question sue I've just got one more question from me you've been looking at the impacts of the invasion on the Russian economy and, and its demography as well now for for many months for our for our listeners what sort of things should they be looking out for I mean the the, the picture you've you've painted I think is one of this deep impact of the war on the economy and on Russia's demography but one, one that in, in which in some ways in which the pain has been absorbed by the by the by the war chest and the damage of which is only going to be seen in the next few years the next in the next few decades as you've said what should our listeners look out for in the next year or two years for some of those sort of early warning signs that of the deep deep damage that's being done
3: just look at the people who are fleeing and I think everyone who I spoke to so there were some people that I, I didn't write about in the piece You know, everyone who I spoke to, they weren't going back. So Most of these people were sort of in their early 30s. They're setting up shop again. So, you know, they sold their homes in a fire cell. They've got children and they're taking them and they're they're taking them to different countries. So I spoke to a a chap called Dimitri. He's got a wife. He's got two kids. He's setting up in Haifa in Israel and um, he's not coming back you know he said even if putin was removed you know I, I have to start again and you know in possibly in my 40s i i you know i'm going to set up my new life there so you know you're going to get these economies who, which are enriched by these these people and and, and russia being left behind, and I guess what to look out for. I mean, it's hard to, to say in terms of the data because we we, we don't know <laughs> whether what's going to come out is going to be true or not. But you know what we have been seeing, and more and more of us stories of people selling up abroad, going abroad, leaving, and leaving permanently. And it, it's a sort of scars that that's going to be left behind. And I guess. I'm not, it's kind of when I go into the Bank of England, I say, what should we look for? And and there's not not one thing, I think. But it's a slow burning crisis in terms of the demographics, but it's the one that's going to have the biggest impact, certainly over the next generation.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very much. Francis, I know you wanted to add some of your own comments
2: onto some of the things Sue was mentioning. Well, I just wanted to add that an uncomfortable truth as well is that, of course, I don't think from Putin's perspective he particularly cares about this demographic loss because he's losing an elite that are of course more skeptical as to his rule and he's not going to be around forever he's already we're talking about age uh, demographics he's already past the average life expectancy for a, a russian male that's something worth bearing in mind uh, so he's he's not going to be around forever and he these people leaving arguably benefits him in the short term it, it hardens his grip on power because they're not there in moscow in st petersburg causing him trouble So they leave the country and it means that those who remain or are forced to remain, and I do stress that there are many people who are forced to remain, uh, are more often more favorable or are people that he can control. So, of course, in terms of the long term, this really, really matters for Russia. But in the short term, you could argue that, unfortunately, these people leaving actually benefits Putin's grip on power. Thank you, Francis. And thank you, Sue.
1: Um, Dom, can we come back to you? You wrote an an interesting analysis over the weekend on uh, what we've been hearing quite a lot of chatter, especially from the Americans, about the the prospect of China potentially supplying arms to Russia. Uh, You wrote this up. Um, Can you talk us through what you found and your thoughts on it?
0: Yeah, so this came from comments by the CIA director, William Burns, who said he was confident, that was his word, confident in his agency's assessment that China is considering sending lethal aid to Russia. So, you know, confident and considering there's a bit of, bit of fudge factor in there as uh, intelligence analysts always do and are correct to do so. Um, but yeah, confident that China might be considering sending lethal aid. So this would be a big a big moment if, if China did this. I mean, China and Russia, as we've just been hearing, they've, they've had this no limits uh, relationship, um, you know, no limits with benefits, I suppose, something like that. But China looks to or Xi Jinping looks to Vladimir Putin and 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 likes the the idea of a the sort of strong man politics the um I'll come onto it in a moment but they he keeps citing the non-interference in other sovereign states I mean they love interfering but as long as it's on their terms but yeah they'll they'll go public and say non-interference so so there's a there's a there's big ties there I mean there's, there's huge differences and and a lot of um Um, A lot of areas where they don't have mistrust between China and Russia. But at the moment, they've got this no limits, no limits relationship. Although I think President Xi was sold a pup. He was told that this was going to be a a three week war and and all over. Um, And he's now found himself saddled to um, a loser who's giving autocracies a bad name. Um, So he's, he's, he's looking for a way out. And there's a question mark as to whether or not he sees that the way out is for Russia to win as quickly as possible, and therefore should he should he help arm them or or not so it's a bit of a bind um for China, but what he would have see, seen recently so she looking at the international landscape um would have seen over Ukraine it did take the external supporters you know shorthand the west a, a little while to to get together now whether this was healthy functioning democracies acting in the public eye vice we we don't see what goes on behind the closed doors in uh, in beijing and moscow um or whether or not there were actually divisions there there are certainly differences of opinion of course between the a number of the external supporters both in the politics about whether to support how to support how much money all the rest of it as we've we've rehearsed many times on this on this pod but you know it took a while to get sanctions together it took a while to get a a unified opinion on on supplying lethal aid and all the rest of it and so she would have seen that, and he would be trying to calculate whether or not, if he ever did anything against Taiwan, would the uh, would the global community come together as quickly slash slowly? Would it want to come together at all? Because arguably, China is more important to the well, that's not that not that arguable. Actually, uh, China is more important to the global economy and the global um, order of things than Russia. So, would there be? any of the the, the the tiny fissures slash cracks that we've seen in the in the support for Ukraine would those be absolutely ripped apart in the face of a Chinese move on Taiwan he's going to be thinking about that but he's also going to be thinking that as i said he wants the snow dome to settle it's all a bit all been very uh, shaken for the last year he wants the snow dome to settle he's he, they put out this peace plan china put out this peace plan last week that we spoke about a peace plan entirely to china's advantage i mean it really it wasn't massive. it didn't tell us much except where they are coming from, um, in their long-term thinking. So it's worth reading for that, but doesn't do anything to stop the war in, in any meaningful capacity, or offer a way a way out of this. Um, but they do want it to want it to stop. And back to the point I made about the non-interference with other other sovereign countries. If China decides to arm Russia militarily, then that I mean that is a, a, a cross crossing this line. Of taking a stand, interfering with with, in wars, and um, taking a stand against a sovereign state, i.e., China, against Ukraine in this example, that they will just not be able to put back in the bottle. They won't be able to get that push that idea away. Now they've been very clear that their that their view on Taiwan is for them and them only. Nobody else gets a vote. Nobody else can come near the issue. They don't want anyone near the idea. They don't want the U.S. Pacific Fleet anywhere near the islands. Yeah, they—they—it's you know, they no one else's business. Well, if they start arming Russia, then they are effectively saying, actually, yes, you—you can, you can take, you can have a view on this. Anybody else in the world, you can decide to arm whomever you like if you want to, if if it uh, if it's in your interest or you're so motivated. So it would be a big, big, big call for them to to take this step. And. What 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 they've also seen, and, and I'll point you here to comments by Mike Martin, who's a um, he works for the well partly works for the War Studies at uh, King's College London. Um, he does other other bits and pieces as well, but he he makes the point that actually China will be very unhappy that this this war was, was not the three week deal that, that Vladimir Putin um, sold President Xi because the, the the West or the you know the external supporters. Of Ukraine. The, w- the West has seen that the world is not as benign a place as, as Mike Martin says, ha- as their self-delusional positions have um, have suggested to them in, in recent years. So he's making the point that many, many people, was, myself included, I didn't think this invasion would happen, This current the current phase of this war, because it makes no sense. It does not make any sense. But of course, I was not thinking as I should have been through, you know, Vladimir Putin does. So the world has seen that the world is not a nice place. Um, And recent UN General Assembly votes to that have massively, massively reinforced that and said that actually we don't like invasions. We don't like people just marching over borders and and killing civilians and and all the rest and smashing the place up. Um, So the UN General Assembly has come together largely on that side. So there's been world outrage, uh, greater unity from, from the West and a demolition of this idea that, ooh, it'll never happen. You know, that idea is gone, right? So so China now, looking at Taiwan, has got those three things facing it. Does it want to make it worse by aiding Russia militarily? And the final point, um, and this was entirely taken from, from Mike Martin, so he's, he's, uh, his Twitter handle is at Threshed Thought, but you'll find him on you know Twitter. We should all be following him, you know, knows his stuff. I'm not going to talk about onions. Um, But he says the final point is about the the military. So he said what uh, what Russia is experiencing now and Ukraine to a certain extent, and certainly China, is they're moving away from a manpower intensive model to a technology enabled force. Now, the West have gone through that looking glass much, much earlier. We are arguing about have our forces got too small or we not got enough. People running around doing all this stuff. Are we too invested in technology? Possibly. Idea for another day. But the idea that that technology or that that just having huge numbers of personnel will take you will, will carry the day is uh, is does not really stack up in face of um, if there's enough tech on the other side. And again, you know, where do you draw the line between how much is enough? But China's yet to go through that that complete transformation. They they are building like crazy, especially the navy. But they haven't tested it. They've not been tested in combat. Now, they might be very fast learners. So I'm not suggesting that they they can't pull something together here. But just having the stuff is one thing. But being able to fight it, operate it and fight it is something else entirely. Um, And so China looking at Taiwan, 70 miles ish across the Taiwan Strait. I mean, it's very, very hard. I mean, she will be looking at Russia. Russia going over a land border with decent road and rail connectivity into Ukraine, and they've still made a complete hash of it, so he's looking at Taiwan thinking, well, yeah that's a big old stretch of water and and that you know that's just getting there and then you've got to take take on the land component so that that is no longer looking like quite the easy fight that some people might have suggested to him that it that it was so all those things in consideration, I still don't think it will have dented the aspiration, um, China's aspiration over Taiwan. But it will certainly give him pause for thought and it will immediately give him pause for thought about whether or not he wants to get his hand even further in the mangle By supplying russia with lethal military aid all a bit of a all a bit of a rehash um articles in today have a look at mike martin online a lot of these arguments are are out there this is the kind of the sort sort of the the breaking wave the bow wave of this argument but um yeah all came from cia director william burns suggestion that, that confident
1: china uh is going to be supplying lethal arms thanks tom francis i know you have many notes on this so please take us through your thoughts (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, I, I certainly do, David. I mean, I'll just, I just start by saying I think Dom summarized the Chinese predicament very well, both from their perspective and from the Western perspective. He said then that for many people, China giving weapons would be a red line crossed. Although I should add that there are for some people, some analysts, a red line has already been crossed. That the decision by China to be hosted by Russia for the anniversary last week of the invasion, said all that we need to know. And indeed, we published a piece today in print from Tobias Elwood, who is head of the Defence Select Committee here in the United Kingdom. That's quite a senior role in defence circles and with our very own Hamish de Breton Gordon. And they've argued in this piece very eloquently that the global order is in deep trouble, that it's become far more protectionist and more divided than at any other time since the collapse of the Soviet Union and that there's been real post-Cold War complacency that's seen autocratic states multiply in recent years. And now China and Russia are openly pioneering a competing vision for a post-West world order that we can't afford to ignore. And the fact is, is that that line has, as I say, already been crossed from their perspective. They quote, when one of the five permanent members on the UN Security Council illegally invades another state, another permanent member then refuses to condemn that invasion and the other three offer no collective strategy to check this blatant breach of international law Then humanity has entered a dark unpredictable chapter and indeed the whole thesis of their piece is in essence that we are in cold war two now whether we like it or not and that whilst there may be steps back steps forward ultimately, that is the new reality that we are living in. And it's just a question of how long it takes for us to wake up. And I do have some sympathy with that view in the context of Ukraine, because in the first episode of the year, I argued in my summary of where we were, that in order to end the war with Putin's total defeat, it would be imperative that it be made politically impossible for countries like China to support Russia without themselves taking a major economic hit, that would be the way that Russia would then be cut off, and it would stop these two blocks emerging. And I pulled out what I said. I said that if they don't, we might get to the stage where even uglier scenarios emerge, of which climb down for both sides, East and West, is politically impossible, and separation and escalation becomes inevitable. Evidently, as yet, the West has not succeeded in Russia's political and economic isolation, China believes that there are little consequences for them for supporting them as things stand. And that's very, very dangerous for the reasons that I've just described. Now, we understand that Emmanuel Macron is to visit China in April in an attempt to convince Beijing to put pressure on Putin to end the war in Ukraine. But we don't really know what he's going to be, as it were, threatening. I mean, it reminds me of of uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's old maxim, speak softly and carry a big stick. But the fact is that there's been a lot of speaking from the West, but I don't see that many sticks with regard to what we would say to China about what were the consequences, what our red line would be if they were to provide this economic or, or weapon support for Ukraine. And as I say, I do think that that is very dangerous. So this feels to me like a very significant period on the question of China and the decisions that are made and the response of the West to what is going on as these conversations are taking place could well define the, the next year of this war and far, far beyond that. Well, thank
1: you, Dom, Francis and Sue. Uh, we're just starting to come to the end of our time together. So can I ask you all for your final words? Uh, Dom, why don't you start? You had a rather interesting start to your Friday morning. Uh, talk us through what happened with you, the Estonian ambassador and the Serpentine Lake in London.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a start of a very really bad joke, doesn't it? Um, so last Friday was... The So Friday the 24th was, the, was Estonia's Independence Day, 105th Independence Day. It coincided, of course, with the year, uh, the, the uh, anniversary of the start of the full-scale invasion in Ukraine. But that's not the reason why the Estonian ambassador had invited uh, a small group of journalists and other, and some diplomats down to the Serpentine, which is a big lake in Hyde Park here in central London, um, for a dip, but wanted to talk about estonia's independence day and embrace the natural environment boost wellness improve our resilience by going for a swim in pretty much sub-zero waters it was really quite uh, really quite nippy they had a mobile sauna which was uh, which was very very good of them but it was only plus two outside at the water and you know in a glaring oversight by the parks authorities they still haven't managed to heat the serpentine so i spent the night before thursday night trying to find goose fat um to smear on myself like a cross-channel swimmer which didn't um, I was not able to find any in Brixton and so I had to raid the kitchen and I found some fry like coconut oil um, which was a poor substitute I have to say Um, but I managed to very briefly have an interview with the ambassador in the water and I say briefly because I lost the ability to speak Um, but I did ask him whether or not the Russian ambassador had been invited to this um, if diplomats always managed to find a way to speak regardless of what else is happening with their countries. Um, there is a film which will be going up online in the next couple of hours. You will you can see, uh, you can hear um, Ambassador Mr. Luby's answer to that and, and and see me shivering in some very cold water. So it's all, all, rather, all rather unpleasant. I didn't get this euphoric glow you're supposed to feel when you've been in cold water swimming. Everyone said, oh yeah, five minutes later you'll feel brilliant. And I just felt bloody freezing for for hours to be perfectly honest but it was it was quite a nice start today the the breakfast was very nice but yeah apart from that it was freezing and the fry i've got to go and write a letter to the fry light people because it's just it was that didn't work
1: well thanks very much tom I, I suppose you know we asked the question i'm sure we're very excited to see the video that's coming out later um will there be an article with this as well or just the video
0: uh one no i mean <laughs> there's not really an article because i only managed to get about two questions before, before everything seized up so it's not there's not much to not much to say really it's just, just his answer as to why um plot spoiler why he didn't invite the 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 Russian ambassador um yeah, but hey i'm wearing I've got a pair of socks, and we all got goodie bags to, and I've got some Estonian socks which I'm sporting today maybe i should uh, yeah they're very good Yeah, I'll put a photo up
1: well, thanks for that dom uh well listeners, if you do want to see Dom uh swimming at subzero temperatures covered in goose fat um Oh, sorry, Goose Fat Substitute, sorry, Dom. Um, look, look, look for that on the Telegraph's YouTube page later. Thanks, Dom. Francis, can I come to you for your
2: very final thoughts? Thanks, David. I'm still processing what I've just heard, I think. I'm wondering where my invitation went for a cold dip in the serpentine. Must have got lost in the post. Anyway, uh, I wanted to end with a reflection on an article that stirred quite a bit of controversy in the past fortnight or so, particularly due to an extended metaphor for the war at the start. It's called How the War in Ukraine Ends. It was published in The New Yorker, and it's an extended interview with the historian Stephen Cockin. And at the beginning, the interviewer asks him the following. Last year, you told me at the very early stage of the war that Ukraine was winning on Twitter, but that Russia was winning on the battlefield. A lot has happened since then, but is that still the case? And Mr. Cockin replies, unfortunately. Let's think of a house. Let's say that you own a house and it has 10 rooms. And let's say that I barge in and take two of those rooms away And I wreck those rooms And from those two rooms, I'm wrecking your other eight rooms And you're trying to beat me back You're trying to evict me from the two rooms You push out a little corner, you push out another corner maybe But I'm still there and I'm still wrecking And the thing is, you need your house, that's where you live It's your house and you don't have another Me, I've got another house And my other house has a thousand rooms And so if I wreck your house, are you winning or am I winning? And so then he goes on. Unfortunately, that's the situation we're in. Ukraine has beaten back the Russian attempt to conquer their country. They have defended their capital. They've pushed the Russians out of some of the land that the Russians conquered since February. They've regained about half of it, and yet they need their house, and the Russians are wrecking it. Now, I don't think he's entirely wrong in that analogy, but I don't think he's entirely right either, because what he ignores in that analogy is that the person barging into the house, Putin is staking everything on their success. The analogy treats the wrecker as a bully who will be unaffected by his actions. But that's simply not true. Those two rooms have arguably become existential for the wrecker. And so if you were to include that fact in the analogy, it doesn't seem quite so dispiriting to me. For what matters ultimately, and not the other 1,000 rooms, but are just those two rooms. And if those two rooms can be restored to the homeowner, to Ukraine, then the wrecker may not only lose his grip on the house, but he may lose his own house too, especially if in the act of trying to keep those two rooms, his own house begins to fall apart. So whilst it's an interesting analogy, and I do always hesitate to use analogies because I think they are often incomplete, I do think it's misleading and I think it should be discarded really without some quite heavy caveats but as i say an interesting thought an interesting point that he makes and one that has as i say stirred up quite a bit of comment of people both in agreement and disagreement but those are those are my two pennies worth david and hopefully that anyone who goes away and reads the article can offer their own thoughts i'll be interested to hear more on on twitter so thank you ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph
1: to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash ukrainelatest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Emily Hill.